Hey, my name is Brayden, one of the servant leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope you can lean in and enjoy this message. Well, today we get to jump into week two of our series, The Gift of Limits. And we kicked this off last week with a message entitled The, the Gift or the Limit of Autonomy and the Gift of Freedom. And, and today is really kind of part B of last week. And if you weren't here last week, we'll catch you up just a bit. But if you weren't here, I'd also just encourage you, if you consider Ethos to be your home, to go back and listen and lean in. It builds a foundation for where we're going over the next few weeks together as we lean into this series. But before we jump in, I want to read our theme text for this series one more time this morning. So would you stand with me in honor of reading God's word together this morning? Then we'll be seated in just a moment. But I want to read from John chapter 8, verse 31, which is our theme text throughout the entirety of this series. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, if you hold to my teaching, said you're really my disciples, you're my, you're my people, you're my followers, then you'll know the truth, and it's the truth that sets you free. And they, they answered him, and they said, but we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anybody. How can you say that we'll be set free? And Jesus said, listen, I'm telling you guys the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. What Jesus is saying here is inviting us into a personal relationship of sonship, of daughtership with him. Not just a routine of religiosity, but an experience of a relationship. And he says, so if the son sets you free, you'll truly be free indeed. Let's pray one more time this morning. God, thank you again for these few moments that we have together as a family just to share with one another, to lean into your word. And God, I ask again that you would do what you so faithfully do, which is make up the distance between what I prepared to say and the little that I have to give today. And you'd make up that distance and give what only you can give. Speak what only you can speak. Say what only you can say. And God, we do pray that you continue to unite us as a church family as well as we continue to move forward as it relates to what it looks like to follow Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The limit of self-knowledge, the, the gift of the Bible, is our, is our working title today. The limit of self-knowledge, the gift of, of truth in one sense. A few weeks ago, Judah, my eight-year-old son and I, were swimming in a public pool, and there was very few people in this pool. And so Judah took it upon himself to come up with all sorts of pool games that he wanted me to play with him. And Judah's pool games have become grossly unfair. Like, he, he says, Dad, I got a game, I got a game, I got an idea. So what is it, son? He says, you swim underwater the entire length of the pool. You got to touch that wall. And you got to swim underwater all the way back, never bringing your head up. Now, the length of this pool was pretty big. It was about the distance of this room right here. And he said, if you do that, if you do that, Dad, Dad, I'm going to give you 10 points. I said, okay. So what do you have to do? He said, well, I'm going to swim from this wall to that wall, the width of the pool, which is about a third of the distance of the length of the pool. And he said, but I don't have to put my head underwater. I can swim above the water. And I, I get 20 points. <laughs> it's a true story. I said, bud, that, that doesn't even remotely sound fair. He said, no, it's fair, dad. He said, you got to trust me. I was like, okay, okay. You're like pulling my words on me right now. Okay, okay. And so, so I'm taking this way more seriously than I ought to. And so I start to kind of slow my heart rate down. And I, I get under the water. I kick off the wall as hard as I can. I, I make it to the other wall. And at this point, I'm feeling kind of impressed with myself. I'm like, Maybe I can do this. I make about a third of the way back, and sure enough, like I am toast. I'm out of breath. I come up from the water. I'm gasping for air. I kind of wipe the, 
the, the water off my eyes and I look at Judah and Judah with an expression of disappointment, he says, dad, you don't get 10 points. He said, but, but I'm going to give you a second chance. I said, buddy, I don't think you understand. I don't think, I don't think I can do this. And he says, dad, you can do it. You can, you can do it. We have these five values in our home. And one of them is that smuckers never give up. He goes, you can't give up. Smuckers never give up. I was like, there are some things, son, that dad's going to give up on. Okay, this is one of them right now. Like, we all, have, we all have limitations. Some of us are aware of our limitations. Some of us aren't. There's limitations that we all have that none of us are aware of. That's where community and friendship and healthy spiritual relationships are so valuable because there's blind spots that we just can't see without, without healthy relationships in our lives to share some of those blind spots with us. But the idea of limitations is something that God actually created us, created within us for us to be aware of. And we try to shirk the limitations of our lives. We, we actually go against the grain of what God desires most for us and th- thereby not experiencing the joy and the peace in the reality of what it looks like to actually have freedom in our lives as followers of Jesus. In fact, in the very beginning, Genesis chapter one, verse one, we, we see the initiation of limits. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right here in verse one, the very first verse of the scriptures, we see the ingredients of our universe. We see time, In the beginning, we see space, God created the heavens. We see matter and the earth. In fact, we could say it like this, that an eternal God made a world limited by time, an immeasurable God made a world limited with boundaries of space, and an immaterial God made a world restricted by by matter, that limitations were part of the design and the way in which God created not only the earth, but us. Because as we mentioned last week, the story goes on, and even if you're not a Christian, or you didn't grow up in church, you're not sure what you believe about God, you've, you've heard the story, you've heard the Christian story of creation before. And it's hard to ignore, it's hard to dismiss the reality that Genesis 1, 2, and 3, regardless of what we believe about Jesus, or faith, or Christ, or the scriptures, it's hard to dismiss that the story of, the, of creation is the story of our lives. It's a story of the world. In fact, in Genesis 2, we see God give Adam and Eve this, this command. He, he says, look, look you, can, you can eat from any tree you want. In fact, you can do anything you want, except you just can't eat from this one tree, the, the tree of knowledge. It's important to understand that in a world full of yeses, God gave one singular no. And we said last week, and parents, this is really important for us to understand as we're raising our kids and helping them identify why God does some of what he does. We gotta understand the reason why he gave that one restriction is because if God is to be loved, he must be loved willingly. That love is always a choice. It's never just a feeling. It's never just a thought. That love is always an action, always something that we do, that we put into, into practice. In fact, the command to not eat from that fruit was not merely about food choice. The command is an invitation to trust God at his word. And so this one command, don't eat from this one singular tree, was actually an expression, an overflow of God's grace towards you and me. It was an extension of a relationship. He's offering, hey, come and trust me. Put a relationship with me. And the reason why we know this is an overflow of God's grace and offer to have a relationship is because every relationship, every single one of them, friendship, married, working, relationships, relationship with our friends, our neighbors, whatever, they're all built on trust. 
If you remove trust, there is no relationship. Once trust is broken, the relationship is broken. Trust needs to be built back up. And so God is actually offering us the opportunity, not for restrictions, but for a relationship. In fact, as we understand it, the essence of freedom is not do's and don'ts, but of a personal allegiance to a relationship with Jesus. We mentioned last week that if you want God, but you don't want obedience, you want the God who loves you, who gives you that love, who gives you that peace, who comes in and enriches your life, but you don't want obedience. You're just using God. You're using him as an object, but you're not relating to him as a father. In fact, there is only one proof of love, and that is obedience. And so if we're going to have a personal relationship with him, if your religion is going to be personal, you have to be obedient to him. Jesus says that it's in obedience where we find freedom. And it's not a freedom to do whatever we want to do. It's not a freedom from the pain of this world. It's not a freedom to remove all obstacles in life, but it's a freedom to experience life as it was meant to be lived, life with Jesus. And the reason why we're freed by obedience and allegiance to Jesus is because we're obeying the will of our designer. We're obeying the one who knows best. And we're no longer carrying around the weight and the burden of trying to figure it all out on our own. Because Christianity, the difference between it just simply being a religion versus it being a relationship, is that Christianity is not a set of do's and don'ts. It's an invitation to join into a trusting relationship with Jesus in his truth and his word, knowing that, trusting that, believing that, having a deep faith in the reality that God really does know you best. I don't have this on a slide, but before first service, when the team was leading us in worship, I was just reminded of Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21. This is God speaking. He says, your own ears will hear him. Right behind you, a voice will say, this is the way you should go, whether to the right or to the left. This is the direction that you ought to walk. God wants to speak to you. He's desiring to lead you. He has a way in which he's designed your life and he knows which way that is supposed to be. And so his desire for you and for me and what we believe here at Ethos is that God is still alive. That his words are desiring to penetrate your ears. His words are desiring to move past all the things that distract us from having a true authentic relationship with him. From experiencing him the same way that we would experience the joy of a relationship with a really good friend. And so he wants to tell us, hey, go right. Hey, go left. Hey, slow down. Hey, speed up. Hey, stop right now. And don't go any further at all. In fact, that's the reason, and here's where we pick up where we left off last week. That's the reason why Jesus invites us like this. He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all of you who are weary and you carry heavy burdens, I want to give you rest. I, I, want, I want you to experience that feeling of just settledness. And then he says this phrase that we wouldn't necessarily use in our 21st century American vernacular. He, he says, take my yoke upon you and let me teach you. He says, there's so many things in this world who are garnering your attention, who, who are trying to teach you something. And, and he says, I believe with gentleness and humility at heart, he, he says, hey, 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 let, let me teach you. 
He says, let me teach you because I'm humble and I'm gentle. And, and it's here in my truth that you're going to find real rest for your souls. In fact, verse 30 of Matthew 11, Jesus goes on. He says, listen, listen, my yoke for you, it's easy. My yoke is easy. In fact, this word easy, it comes from, in the original language, the Greek word meaning being krestos, which which means the type of toothpaste you brush your teeth with. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. That just came to me right now. I'll save the dad jokes for next week, Father's Day. Anyway, moving on. It actually means well-fitting. Cheyenne's like, did you just actually say that, Jordan? That was the most ridiculous dad joke I've ever heard. Thanks, Cheyenne. It means well-fitting. And what Jesus is teaching here is something that ancient... Ancient Palestinians would have understood that in ancient Palestine, ox yokes were made of wood. In fact, the ox would be brought in by someone who would make this yoke and the measurements were taken to exact specifications. The yoke would be then carefully adjusted over a period of adjustments so that the yoke would fit just right as to not chafe the neck of the animal. And so the yoke would be tailor-made to perfectly fit that ox, uniquely different from any other ox. And so Jesus is saying, my yoke fits you well. My truth is perfectly tailor-made for you. The plan that I have for you, whoo, it's a good one. But I'm inviting you to trust me with it. In fact, more specifically, I think that Jesus is saying the life that I give you is not, not a burden to cause you pain. Your task is made to measure, to fit you. Perfect. That's why he says, my yoke for you, it's easy. Jesus, in context here in Matthew 11, you gotta understand who he's speaking to. He's talking to people who are desperate to, to find God. They're desperately trying to be good, who, who are finding the task, though, to be impossible and are driven to weariness and despair. And maybe you can relate with these people because I know, that, I know that I can. If you have ever tried your best to do everything that you know what is right to do within your own knowledge, within your own self-understanding, yet it feels like you're just not getting anywhere. It feels like you take one step forward and two steps back. You're like, man, I feel like I'm doing good. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm doing everything that I know to do. I feel like I'm going right when I should go right and left when I should go left, but I just... I'm tired. I'm worn out. And Jesus is speaking to those types of people right now. He's saying, I get it. Are, are, are you feeling a little bit desperate? Are you feeling a little bit weary? He says, come. He said, the ingredient that you're missing is a trust that my yoke for you, it really is easy. It really is the best for you. I've got a well-designed life for you. And so his invitation is to is to those who are experiencing weariness in their search for truth. What is the real meaning of life? What am I doing with my, what's the goal of my life? What's the purpose of my life? Have you ever been to an escape room before? Can I see your hands if you've been there? Quite a few of you, at least about half of you. Escape rooms are those places you go to and you're probably familiar with, but in the event that you're not, you, you find yourself in a room and you have a series of clues that you have to figure out, kind of either how to find the key or how to get out of the room or how to find the next clue, and you have a certain amount of time to do it. Escape rooms, in theory, are so much fun to me. In reality, I hate them. I, I'm terrible at them. Like, I feel like I should be good at them, 
And yet I find myself in them and I'm like, man, can you just figure this out? Let me know when you found the next clue. Like I'm just, I'm so bad at them. In fact, my, my wife would tell you that we'll, we'll often watch like these criminal investigation shows or movies, you know what I'm talking about? And I never have any idea what's going on. I'm like, oh, that, that guy's really bad, huh? And Courtney would be like, he's the good guy, babe. I'm like, man, that guy's the good guy, huh? He's going to, no, that, that's the murderer, babe. I'm like, oh, okay. Note to self, don't trust yourself if you ever find yourself in a situation where you don't know what's going on. Like, I, like I, just, I just find myself having a really difficult time looking for whatever I should be seeing. And escape rooms, in theory, they're really fun, but after a while, they become a bit exhausting to me. And I think that's a bit indicative and maybe even runs parallel with the way that it, the way that it relates to us discovering truth. Sometimes the discovery for truth is kind of fun in the beginning. And, and in particular, when kids, I see this so often, when students will go off to college or maybe even in their 20s or 30s, they're presented with a, with a book that's sort of like the new trend and everybody's reading this book and it's, it's kind of debunking everything that we once believed and it's creating within us all of these questions that we never had. It's the first philosophy class that we've ever experienced and suddenly we think, man, we know the answers to life's toughest questions and, and maybe you do, but most likely you don't. And I've discovered in my own life and I think you've seen this to be true as well and we did a series of teachings on this in the fall that deconstructing some of what we've been handed as a child as it relates to our faith that the initiation of that can be a really healthy thing, but only if it leads to reconstruction, only if it leads to owning our faith for ourselves. But oftentimes in our search for truth, we become so exhausted, so worn out, and we begin to think maybe there is no such thing as absolute truth, no objective reality, no objective truth. Everything is subjective. In fact, I think this is why community today, in the West primarily, in suburban America, why it's so important to be engaged in community. Because we are bombarded with all sorts of different ideas as to what's true and what's not. And we're left wondering, is there really even a right and a wrong? Or should it just all be left up to what everybody thinks for themselves? The idea that you just do you. Don't let anybody else restrict you or tell you what you should or shouldn't do. In fact, this viewpoint is something referred to as immoralism and and none of us in here most likely or even watching online would say, yes, I would ascribe to being an immoralist, but I think a lot of it has crept into the church today. It probably has crept into our own lives as well. But an immoralist would say there's, there's no such thing as right or wrong. And kind of the sister of immoralism is emotivism, which is the idea that when you say something is right or wrong, you're only ascribing to that, not because it's something you believe to be true, but because it's how you feel about it in the moment. So an immoralist would also be an emotivist, which would say, if you say something right now is right or something is wrong, the only reason why you ascribe to that is because it's how you feel. But tomorrow you could feel something different. And so all of truth is subjective, but it's, there's, no, there's no way foundationally we can believe anything to be absolutely true. And now again, we probably wouldn't ever say and raise our hand and say, yes, I agree with that. But I do think a lot of it has crept into the church. I read of a professor recently who was sharing this at a Christian university and he was teaching the immoralist and the emotivist argument. Several of the students began to say, yeah, that, that sounds kind of convincing. So the, the professor came in for day two of this class and he announced at the introduction of the class, he said, hey, I just want you all to know that 
I've decided at the end of this semester, I'm going to assign final grades based off of the length of your last name. So the shorter your name, the higher the grade. And the students begin to say, well, that's not fair. And the professor said, well, what do you mean it's not fair? He said, well, it's not right. And the professor said, well, what, what do you mean it's not right? I, I think it's good for people to have shorter last names because it's easier for me to remember them, easier for me to say them, and easier for me to write them down on your, on your scorecards. And so I like shorter last names. And again, the students argue, but that's not fair. And so Professor Victor Lee Austin noted that his students, in other words, find they're unwilling to abandon the idea that morality speaks to a feature of the world. That when faced with an existential crisis over their grades, they discover that after all, they hold fairness to be something real in the world about which we can and ought to have rational conversation. What he is noting here is that most immoralists want everyone else to be moralists. They just don't quickly realize it. Now, what does this look like in Christianity, more specifically? Well, about 40 years ago, a New Testament scholar by the name of Walter Liefeld, who's still around today, but he's getting quite older at this point, he, he noted and coined a phrase referred to as theological eclecticism. He began to note over four decades ago something that he saw creeping into the church that I think is even more relevant today. And, and he defined theological eclecticism this way. It's a way of looking at religion and beliefs in which one is not committed to any one religious organization or belief system, but instead chooses aspects of these at will. He goes on to say, any teaching or ethical yardstick that is personally appealing is considered valid. What he's describing here is a way in which many of us even relate to our faith. We'll say things like, and maybe we wouldn't even say it, Maybe we wouldn't be bold enough to say it. Or maybe we wouldn't say it because we just don't even realize that this is the way in which we operate. But we'll say like, I mean, I really like what Jesus said here. I just don't know that I agree or feel very compelled to follow him as it relates to what he said here. I really like how Paul outlined what is written here. I just don't really like what Peter notes right, right here. And we'll pick and choose, oftentimes even just based on the day how we feel about something as to whether or not we're going to lean in and obey that thing. And here's the, here's where this falls short. And here's where this is so disappointing for all of us, myself included, that the invitation of Jesus is to come and engage in a relationship built on trust with me. And when you don't trust me, when you don't practice my word, when you don't lean into my truth, you miss out on what I would argue is the best part of our faith. What I would argue is the gift of accepting our limits of self-knowledge and leaning into the reality that God really does know best. In fact, I think maybe in layman terms, what theological eclecticism looks like in our lives today is a la carte Christianity. We just sort of pick and choose what we think is right, what we think is wrong, based on what we just personally desire, what just makes us feel good. And as we mentioned last week, we stumble upon autonomy, what makes us feel good. And yet all the while we're dying inside because we never continue the journey to freedom, where we lean into not just what makes us feel good, even though we discover over a period of time, if you live long enough, that what makes you feel good right now makes you feel not so good later on. And we miss out on the joy of freedom, freedom found in a relationship with Christ because we just settle for what's good rather than pursuing what is, what is great. 
In fact, it's in a la carte Christianity where I think several things happen. In fact, I noted eight different things that I've observed happen in this type of of Christianity, but I just want to share for the sake of time today just four of them. I think it's an a la carte Christianity where Christ becomes an appendage to our lives rather than the center of of our lives. We are still on the throne of life. Jesus hasn't been allowed to lord over us. And it's here where we begin to use Jesus rather than love him. It's here where God becomes a means to an end rather than the end. It's here where we view God simply as a gift giver rather than as a loving heavenly father. As we mentioned last week, dads, you know this. If you didn't put limits on your kids, you wouldn't be a good dad. There are things your kids do not like when you tell them no. There are things your kids do not like when you tell them yes. You gotta eat that broccoli, son. No, eat it, no, eat it, no, eat it, right? It's like, this is good for you. I don't like you very much, dad. But it leads to something even greater. And the question that we have to wrestle with in our own lives, individually, not pointing the finger at somebody else, we gotta look into the mirror of our own soul and we gotta say, do I follow Jesus only when I like him? Or do I follow him even when he disappoints me? Because a loving loving heavenly father knows what's best for us even when we don't know what's best for us. A good dad knows what's best for their kids even when their kids are young and they don't know what's best for them. I think it's an a la carte Christianity in addition where we place our wants above the word of God. And we ignore some of the things that the Bible demands because it just doesn't go along with how we maybe view the world. I noted this in first service, and I'll share it with you. Shortly before C.S. Lewis passed, he was widely considered to be one of the greatest theologians ever. Shortly before he, he passed, he, he said that he began to notice something was happening in the church. And he, he coined this phrase that is so relevant today as chronological snobbery. He said, I'm noticing there's a lot of chronological snobbery happening in the church among Christians today, that we begin to think that saints of old don't know as much as, as Christians of, of new. In fact, in Catholicism, in order to become considered a saint, you can't be introduced into sainthood until after you've died, until after you've crossed the finish line. Have you noticed that today? We tend to lean into people who have barely done anything yet. We tend to get our truth from people who have barely even accomplished anything yet, who have barely experienced any storms in their Christian journey yet. You want to learn from somebody, learn from somebody who's gone through it, and they didn't just crawl across the finish line. They walked across the finish line with peace and joy, integrity and character in hand. That's why so often I quote dead people in here because... I think those are the people that we ought to learn the most from. Not being so snobbish that we think, well, I know best today. And we place our wants above the word of God. Number three, we allow culture the authority to determine our beliefs. I think this one might be the most relevant. And what I've discovered in my own life, and I'm so grateful for friendships and relationships, is that I have so many blind spots in life that outside of healthy community, I'm not even sure that I would always know when I'm allowing culture to determine what I believe more than allowing God to determine it for me. 
Stanley Hauerwas, who's a professor in Texas, he recently noted in one of his writings that if a medical student told his advisor, I'm not really into anatomy this year. I'm really into people. And he asked to skip the anatomy class to focus on people. The medical school would reply, who do you think you are, kid? You're going to take anatomy. If you don't like it, that's tough. Now, what this shows you is that people believe incompetent physicians can hurt them. Therefore, people expect medical schools to hold their students responsible for the kind of training that's necessary to be competent physicians. On the other hand, few people believe an incompetent minister can damage them. What Professor Stanley is noting here is that bad doctrine can harm us. It can hurt us. What you believe matters. In fact, I don't have time to get into it today. I had to scrub it from my notes. But what you believe determines what you think, say, and do. Now, that's been widely noted throughout psychology, but that has been the story of the scriptures all the way throughout before science ever introduced that to our reality today. God's been saying that for what you believe determines what you think, say, and do. Therefore, what we believe is, is important. Therefore, there is such thing as objective truth. Not everything is simply sub- subjective, which is the reason why we have got to take seriously where are we? Maybe even more importantly, who are we guarding our beliefs from? There's a whole movement right now of TikTok theology. I've been introduced to this by my daughter, of course, who's 14. And it's these 20-some-year-old young people, young adults, who are forming this whole movement of deconstruction based off of stuff as I watch some of these TikToks, as my daughter shows them to me, forming thoughts about why you shouldn't believe in God. I'm like, but that, God doesn't even say you should believe that. Like, you're deconstructing a part of the Bible that the Bible doesn't even say. Like, you're just misinterpreting Scripture. That's all that it is. And so people are walking away from God for reasons like God never even said, you should follow me for this reason. And most of the time, it's a result of simply because we have been, we have been trained in one sense to view God simply as a gift giver. And so if we ask God for X and he doesn't, he doesn't deliver on Y, we think God has disappointed us in such a way when in reality, God's saying, no, 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 I just know better for you. I know what's best for you. And so who is forming our theology? Who's forming our belief systems? Is it CNN? Is it Fox News? Is it the most recent article that we've read? We're, we're all guilty of this. In fact, in, in psychology, there's a, there's a term referred to as motivated reasoning, which is the process by which personal emotions control the evidence that's supported or dismissed. In other words, we believe what we believe simply because we want to believe it or we don't want to believe it. It takes three times more information for you to believe something you don't want to believe than for you to believe something you do, which is why most of what we reshare on social media or otherwise, most of what we reshare even verbally, we haven't necessarily formed concrete reasons to why we believe it. We just simply liked it. Sounded good. Backed up what I already believe. But maybe it's not what God is calling us to believe. Maybe it's not really what's best for your life. Maybe it's not really the yoke that Jesus has created individually for each and every one of us. And lastly, in a la carte Christianity, the world ignores us. They don't see any benefit in the church. 
And why would they? Because why would the world ever take note of a Christianity that looks no different than they do? Non-believers simply aren't looking for a faith that isn't obviously and powerfully life-transforming. Non-believers simply aren't looking for a faith that looks identical to them, that results in a lifestyle identical to them, that results in the same deterioration of our own souls as them, that doesn't look any different than the way in which the world is doing it, that doesn't result in any greater peace, any greater joy. And again, we believe in Jesus. We just haven't committed our lives to actually making him the Lord of our life and accepting his truth as the governing authority and the rule and the reign of our lives. As Paul noted in 1 Corinthians 4, he said, the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. The kingdom of God is living by God's power, truly being transformed by a relationship with Jesus. Listen, relationships change you. Show me your friends, I'll show you your future, right? Psychology has noted that the five closest relationships in your life will determine what your life looks like 10 years from now. Note, the closest relationship in our life ought to be that with Jesus. And when you grow in a deepening relationship with him, it transforms you. My wife and I will celebrate 17 years of marriage this October, having been together almost 19 years now. It's changed both of us. Thank you. Whoever said woo, thank you. Chase, appreciate that, bro. It's been hard, man. She's hard to live with. And she's not here right now, so I'll say whatever I want to say. No, I'm just kidding. But, but she's changed me, and I've changed her. We've strengthened and, and, and built one another up. Hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. But it's taken time. And it hasn't been without its difficulties. It hasn't been because everything she's done, everything I've done has always been what we've liked. But most of the time, in fact, I'd say after 17 years, I trust her more than I've ever trusted her before. And as a result, every good relationship is built on trust. And as a result, I have a deeper relationship with her today than I've ever had before, and she with me. And so the invitation of Jesus is to receive this, this deep gift of faith. And deep faith in Jesus means going all in. Deep faith is not a one-time thing where you say, okay, 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 all right. I'm gonna make God, Jesus Christ, Lord of my life. I'm obedient. And then you just go on and do your own thing. No, it doesn't quite work like that. Deep faith is more than just a prayer. It's, it's sort of like getting married, and it's, it's making vows. You ever been to a wedding? You've been to a wedding, and I've been to a lot of weddings, and, and whenever the couple will make vows with each other, it's beautiful, and it's heartwarming, and it's awesome. And I, I, I vow for the rest of my life, through thick and thin, come hell or high water, to love you forever. Like a week after their honeymoon, they wake up, Hey, your breath stinks. Is that how you always gonna look up? Look at that's, that's how you gonna look at seven a.m. Is that is this forever? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You didn't like that joke? Okay, sorry. Too close to home. Okay. Like no, Jordan. I I always look good. I'm perfect. Okay. All right. Here we go. The truth is, is when you make those vows, you haven't done anything yet. You haven't delivered on those vows yet. That's why when people tell me, man, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, whoo, that's worth celebrating. That's worth celebrating. Why? Because you've been through some stuff. I know you've been through some stuff. And you stuck it, you delivered on those vows. You've been through it. Well, you've come out on the other side. That's, that's remarkable. 
That's, that's worth celebrating. Because on our wedding day, yeah, that's awesome and it's beautiful, but we've hardly done anything yet. And that's why Jesus says, and here's where we're beginning to close. If you hold to my teaching, he said, everybody say hold. Come on, one more time, say hold. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you see this? If you hold on to it, you really are my followers, my disciples. Then, then you'll know the truth. When you hold on to it, you'll begin to discover the truth and the truth will set you free. Now here's what's interesting. He says, you'll know the truth when you hold on to it. In other words, what Jesus is implying here is that you've got to trust me with the truth and then you'll begin to have a revelation of knowing the truth. That word there in the original language is this Greek word, gnosko, which means to know it to the full, to know something in its entirety. But Jesus says you won't know it in its entirety until you step out in obedience and practice it first. We oftentimes, as it relates to following Jesus, we want the knowing first and then the obedience. But that's not trust. That's not a relationship. In the invitation of Jesus, remember, it's this gracious invitation. Come, trust me. I want you to be my follower. I want to have a relation. I want you to be my son. I want, you to be, I want you to be my daughter. And so this word, hold, hold to my teaching, it comes from this Greek word, meno, which means to stay put. What Jesus is saying is you have to settle down into my word and stay there. What he's relating to here is what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7, where he tells that story. He says, anybody who builds their house on the rock, you're going to have some storms in life, no doubt. But you are going to stand firm through the midst of those storms. He's implying that he is the rock. He says, anybody who builds their life on the sand, you're going to go through those same storms in life. It's not going to look any different, but you're going to be tossed to and fro. You're going to be washed away. He says, so build your life on the rock is what he's saying. Hold to my truth. I want to ask you, in fact, just kind of a moment here off note. On Tuesday and Wednesday, we have kids camp. Ethos Kids Camp. It's our first ever hosting kids camp and we're so excited about it. And just it's kind of just that 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 first step into just continuing to partner with families and parents and to grow help their kids grow into a growing relationship with Christ. And and on Tuesday I was asked to teach on Matthew 7 to these kids. I got 10 minutes to teach on what it looks like as a first, a second, third, fourth, fifth grader to build your life on Jesus, not on just whatever we want. And I just ask that you would pray for us this week as we go into kids camp. In fact, if you're serving at camp this week, can I see your hand? If you're in here and you're serving, quite a few of you, thank you. Thank you for taking Tuesday and Wednesday some time out of your schedule to participate in that. It is worth the investment. And so Jesus is saying, you've got to hold on to my truth. You can't just hear it. You have to rest in it and accept it as the governing authority in your life and then put it into practice. That when this week you sit down to read your Bible, it's not, don't, don't just have this thought, like I'm just going to get a little blessing this morning to kind of get me through my day. No, you want to just slow down. Take the word of God and put it into the center of your life where it begins to control you. Some of you are really gifted at music. Some of you can play multiple instruments. I know Hunter can play like every instrument on this stage right now. I know Weston can pretty much, Weston, Colton can pretty much do the same. Hey, Colton, you've been up there this whole time. I didn't know you for a really long time. Anyway. But, but the reason why they're so good at the instruments that they're 
they're so what we would say gifted at is yeah there, there probably is a gift there no doubt and I wish that I could play like many of them but the reason why Colton has tremendous freedom when he's playing the keys because he's not playing any sheet music right now he's not reading off of any sheets right now he's just playing freely and the, the reason why he's good at that is because he's been disciplined over a long period of time to practice that I've known Colton for a decade now and I know how much he practices the the keys and if you are good at any instrument you realize that you got to that place of freedom because you gave yourself to it and so today it's become an instrument of freedom because you recognize that freedom always comes from discipline always Today or throughout the week, throughout this summer, when you see a sailboat at the lake, you see that sailboat sailing like it is because it's been built in accordance to the laws of the wind in in the water. It's obeying what it's there for. And the captain as well is obeying its design. And that's why he as well is experiencing the freedom of that, that sailboat. But if that sailboat could talk, which would be awesome if it could, if that sailboat could talk and suddenly one day it said, you know what, I'm just, I'm really tired of going around this lake. Same thing every day. I've been around this lake a hundred different times. And I, I think today, I just want to go down Route 23. That's, that's what I want to do today. I want to experience freedom today. I want to, I want to know what it means to be free. Well, what is freedom for that boat? Uh, freedom for that boat is when it's obeying the will of the designer. When it's doing what it's been created to do, it was built to go on water. So it goes down the street, and yeah, it might go a little bit, probably not very far, just a couple feet. And it might be able to say, I've never been here before. But will it be free? All beat up and immobile? All of us would unanimously say, no. And so when someone says, well, freedom is doing whatever you want, if you know yourself, I mean, you really spend some time growing in self-awareness. You recognize pretty quickly, you don't actually know what you want. You don't really know what the heck it is that you actually most deeply desire because I've shared this before, but I want to be healthy. I also want to eat all of the peanut butter ice cream in the world every single night at nine o'clock. You know what I'm saying? Like Wits on Lewis Center Road just opened this weekend. I saw an advertisement because I unfortunately follow them on Instagram that they are serving Buckeye Sundays with Buckeye ice cream. I will be there today. I will give in to my desire in my flesh in that moment. But but as comical as it is, what what is freedom though to me? Well, it's it's to be healthy. I mean, both of those desires are very strong, very real desires, very matter-of-fact, but they're also contradictory. But which one will set me free? Well, the the healthy one will. That frees me. It frees me to live longer. It frees me to have less pain. It frees me to be more present dad even. It it frees me to, in my opinion, be even a a, a better pastor, to have more energy in that area of my life. It, It frees me, but it is the harder, more disciplined way. So what do I have to do to be free? Well, I can't do what I want to do. I have to ditch those feelings that actually enslave me. They don't set me free. They don't set you free. Those desires, right? And here's my point. This is where we're closing. The Bible, God's word, the truth of the teachings of the scripture 
can tell you which of the desires enslave you and which of the desires truly set you free. But only God knows who you really are. And I love the words of Eugene Peterson. He said, reading the Bible, it is an immense gift, he says. But only if the words are assimilated, taken into the soul, eaten, chewed, gnawed, received in unhurried, I would add the word patient delight. Parents, you know the feeling when you know what's best for your kids, but your kids don't trust that you know what's best for them? It's a frustrating feeling. Sometimes it hurts too. Because you're like, man, I, I know what's better for you. Listen, as sons, as daughters, friends, your Heavenly Father knows what's better for us. He knows what's better for every single area of our life, for our relationships, our finances, our sexuality, our sobriety, our forgiveness. He knows what's just the uniquely tailor-fit, yoke-is-easy job for you. He, he knows the questions that you have about how to raise your kids. He knows how to transition from, from raising your kids into grandparenting, now grandkids. He, he knows what's best for your singleness. He, he knows what's best. And the invitation of Jesus is to come, to trust me, knowing that I really do know what's best. Don't stop at autonomy. Lean into the freedom that I have available to you.